Welcome back to the Collective Success series of the Neurology Exam Prep podcast. This is the second part of our episode on involuntary movements. The last episode, we talked about different phenomenologies of movement disorders, focusing on tremors. And in this episode, we'll discuss four other phenomenologies. Great. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about chorea next. Uh, first, how is chorea defined? So chorea is non-stereotyped. That's one of the major defining features of chorea, meaning it's not really a pattern. It flows from one part of the body to another in a non-stereotyped way. Great. And what are some conditions that present with chorea? So the one that I'm sure medical students are most familiar with is Huntington's disease. That's not the only thing that can cause chorea. Chorea can happen in pregnancy, chorea gravidarum, in post-strep infections, Sydenham's chorea that you see in children. It can also be involved when uh, patients have strokes. It can be seen in celiac disease and antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Wilson's disease, there are many, many things that can cause chorea. And, and of course, uh, uh, perineoplastic syndromes as well. Mm-hmm. And we will focus our discussion today on Huntington's disease. But before we do so, it's probably worth mentioning that chorea, it's actually felt to be sort of part of a, a choreiform spectrum along with athetosis and hemibolismus, which are two other movements that frequently accompany chorea. Uh, can we define those briefly? Sure, athetosis is just a bit slower than chorea, and they have so much overlap that we sometimes say chorea athetosis and just combine the words together. And then bolismus is a much larger amplitude movement. Great. So I think that will definitely be relevant to our discussion of Huntington's disease. So let's dive right into that. What are the main clinical features of Huntington's? So Huntington's is characterized by motor symptoms, by psychiatric symptoms, and by cognitive symptoms. So the motor symptoms we learn most about are chorea, but in fact, they can have many different movement disorders, including Parkinsonism and myoclonus and dystonia. And they generally have quite significant cognitive impairment that progresses ultimately to dementia. And finally, psychiatric disease. And this can range from extreme anxiety or depression to outright psychosis with delusions and hallucinations and behavioral Mm -hmm. disturbance. Mm -hmm. So really three things here. We're looking for the movement disorder itself, which again is classically the chorea, but we can see many different types of movement disorders, including some that we'll discuss later on the cognitive impairment, which can uh, progress to dementia, and then psychiatric symptoms. What is the pathophysiology behind Huntington's disease? Huntington's is an autosomal dominant disease, and it's caused by a CAG-CAG trinucleotide repeat expansion on chromosome four in the Huntington gene. And it leads to abnormal protein aggregates of hunting, Huntington in the brain that causes a progressive neurodegenerative condition. And what are some of the specific things that you're looking for on exam? Eye movements are very important in Huntington's disease. 
They have slow eye movements and they often have increased latency of saccades. So you tell them to move their eyes and a second or two later, they move their eyes, for example. They have abnormal movements, chorea most commonly in adult patients, but later in disease can have very significant Parkinsonism. And in younger onset pa patients, Parkinsonism can be the predominant movement disorder. Dystonia is also very common, abnormal dystonic posturing of the limbs, for example. Those are, those are the big things on the movement disorders exam. And then what about diagnosis and treatment? Diagnosis is based on genetic testing usually, although you can make a clinical diagnosis of Huntington disease. It's important to rule out other things that can cause chorea. As stated, as I earlier stated, there are lots of things that can cause chorea. And it's important not to jump to genetic testing and just send it on the first visit with the patient because proper genetic counseling is very important as this diagnosis has profound implications for the person's individual future and prognosis, but also for their family. So a diagnosis can come along with financial considerations, social considerations, career considerations, lots of things for the person themselves, but also can come along with a lot of guilt. And in, in these patients with psychiatric you know, psychiatric comorbidity with their Huntington's disease, it's important that genetic counseling is done ahead of time. Treatment is, as of right now, symptomatic, and we treat chorea with dopamine blockade, which comes usually in the form of either antipsychotic medications or tetrabenazine, valbenazine, these medications that block dopamine in various ways. There is a genetic modifying therapy that is in phase three trials at the moment for Huntington's disease and is likely to have a profound impact on the prognosis of this disorder. And as I said, it's in phase three trials. And I, I believe that there are multiple of them that are being studied to actually make it so that the abnormal Huntington protein is not produced and drastically change the way that these patients progress over time. It's very exciting. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to keep an eye out for those results. So just a quick recap again with Huntington's disease, you're really looking for uh, three different categories of features, one being the movement abnormality, and, and chorea is probably what is most commonly seen and, and what medical students learn. There's the cognitive impairment, and then there's the psychiatric symptoms. Uh, and you'll look for those on exam. It's also important to pay attention to ocular symptoms, looking at tracking and saccades, uh, paying attention to tone and looking for dystonia. Um, and, and it also important just to keep in mind that chorea is not the only uh, motor manifestation of Huntington's disease. It can present with a lot of different abnormal movement types. Uh, finally, Huntington's is diagnosed via genetic testing, but it's important to rule out other causes or of the abnormal movement uh, because the diagnosis does require a lot of genetic counseling. And treatment is really focused around symptom management and dopamine blockade at the moment. 
All right. So next, our next phenomenology is myoclonus. So Dr. Schaefer, what is myoclonus and how would you describe it? Myoclonus is a jerky movement that is related to contraction of a muscle. It is generally arrhythmic and it is jerky and unidirectional as opposed to oscillatory and bidirectional as tremor is. There is positive myoclonus and negative myoclonus. So positive myoclonus is related to a abnormal contraction of a muscle. Negative myoclonus, also known as asterixis, is related to pathological relaxation of a muscle. So the reason that we test asterixis in the stop traffic position is because that requires continuous contraction of wrist extensors. And you're looking for the flap of, of the hands as there's a pathological relaxation of the wrist extensors and then a voluntary recovery in, back into the position. All right. So positive myoclonus and negative myoclonus, also known as asterixis. So we won't be delving into any specific conditions uh, related to myoclonus, but can you tell us some causes of myoclonus? So the first and foremost cause of myoclonus is toxic metabolic. We see this very often in the clinic related to gabapentin and pregabalin administration. Opiates can cause myoclonus. There are lots of medications that can cause myoclonus. Renal dysfunction and uremia hepatic dysfunction and hyperaminemia, all of those things can cause myoclonus. Hypoxic brain injury is a common thing that we see post cardiac arrest, for example. Patients can develop a very pronounced positive and negative action-induced myoclonus called Lance Adams syndrome. And we also see myoclonus in normal people. And there are lots of examples of that. One of them is hiccups. That's diaphragmatic myoclonus. It doesn't mean that you have something wrong with you. That's normal. Hypnagogic myoclonus is as you're falling asleep, that jerk that brings you back from, you know, falling, falling in your head or whatever is happening there. So that's all physiologic myoclonus. There are genetic disorders that cause myoclonus. And one thing that's really important to just keep in the back of your mind always is that myoclonus can be a manifestation of epilepsy. And one of the big disorders that causes myoclonus is juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which is JME. So it's important to ask when in the day the myoclonus happens, because if it's first thing in the morning, then that may be indicative of JME and you may want to order an EEG on that patient. And by the way, I, I am going to start calling hiccups uh, diaphragmatic myoclonus from now on. Go for it. <laughs> so the main, the big, big cause of pathologic myoclonus is toxic metabolic myoclonus, but it, it's, all, it's also important to consider in epilepsy. And otherwise, there's also physiologic myoclonus, as we alluded to, which is, for example, hiccups. So while we're on this topic, I want to take a brief question aside because I was really confused by this concept when I was beginning my medical school years, which is myoclonus versus clonus, and because both can be seen in epilepsy. So how would you differentiate these two terms? Clonus is a related to a reflex arc. So for example, if you're testing clonus in the ankle, you push dorsiflex the foot very rapidly 
and you get this beating of of the foot and that's a hyperreflexic reaction related to an abnormal reflex arc myoclonus is not related to reflexes at all it's related to abnormal muscle contraction and it can actually come from anywhere in the neuroaxis it can come from cortical subcortical spinal or peripheral nerves so and then there's clonus related to the terms tonic-clonic, as in tonic-clonic seizures. And that's an even separate thing. So when we, when we say the word tonic-clonic, what we actually mean is that there's a tonic phase. So as phase of sustained muscle contraction, that's when patients bite their tongue during a seizure because their jaw contracts, for example. And then the clonic phase is a rhythmic jerking of the body. And so myoclonus uses those same words, but it's related to abnormal contraction or jerking of an individual muscle that's not related to a seizure or a reflex arc. Awesome. So three separate concepts, myoclonus, clonus, and clonus as in tonic-clonic seizures. Great. Let's move on now to our next phenomenology. Uh, we'll talk about dystonia next. And again, we'll start with just how is dystonia defined? Dystonia is really characterized by the sustained muscle contractions uh, that causes an abnormal posturing or twisting of the body part that is involved. Great. And so for dystonia, we won't dive into too much detail about specific conditions, but what are some examples that medical students should know or may recognize? Many dystonias are idiopathic and focal. So cervical dystonia is a dystonia of the neck, also called torticollis. Though torticollis is just the word that just means turning of the neck, but cervical dystonia is the better term because it involves many different uh, movements of the neck that are abnormal and dystonic. Blepharospasm is dystonia of the eyes. You can get focal dystonias related to overuse, such as musicians' dystonia. Some some musicians get dystonia when they play the guitar, and or even when they play wind instruments, and that's called embouchure dystonia. When you get mouth dystonia related to wind instrument use. And then there are genetic conditions that can cause dystonia. The DYT1 is a big generalized dystonia one that we see. And there are also secondary dystonias related to often dopamine blockade, such as tardive dystonia with long term use of dopamine blocking agents. And then there are also acute dystonic reactions that you can get with with dopamine blockade, including antipsychotics and antiemetic medications such as metoclopramide. And what are some treatment options for dystonia? There are medications that we use for dystonia. We use benzodiazepines, we use muscle relaxants, we use anticholinergic medications. If the dystonia is focal enough, we use Botox and botulinum, botulinum toxin injections where we can really target the muscles because all of the medications that I just listed are sedating and have a whole host of other uh, side effects. And so if you can target 
the dystonia more in a more targeted way with botulinum toxin injections, it's far better for the patient. In patients with genetic dystonias, um, especially DYT1 and even some other idiopathic dystonias, we do use deep brain stimulation as well if it's really refractory. Great. So just to recap, dystonia is really characterized by sustained muscle contraction, which can lead to this abnormal posturing and, and twisting movements. Uh, some examples that medical students should keep in mind, uh, oftentimes these are idiopathic and focal, for example, cervical dystonia, uh, blepharospasm or dystonia of the eyes. And then there are, your, there are the task-specific dystonias uh, really related to overuse, like musician's dystonia. And then finally, there are genetic conditions as well that present with dystonia. And then dystonia is secondary to medications like dopamine blockade. Uh, treatments, uh, some general options are benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants, anticholinergics, but these have side effects. So a focal op for an option for focal dystonia is Botox. And then for some of the more, the genetic conditions, uh, DBS can be a consideration as well. Our last phenomenology is tics. So Dr. Schaefer, what are tics? Tics are semi-voluntary movements. And so what I mean by semi-voluntary is that the person with tics has some degree of control over these movements. They can be suppressed even for a short period of time, but as they're being suppressed, the uncomfortable urge to make the movement increases until the person has further movements. Tics in terms of what they look like are often jerky appearing, but can be dystonic appearing. They can have a lot of different ways that they look but the fact that they are semi-voluntary and stereotyped as well is, is really the essence of tics. They're stereotyped, meaning they do similar things over and over again, and they have somewhat of a pattern or predictability to them. So tics can appear as a transient symptom in children, but the classic example of a disorder is Tourette's syndrome. So what should medical students know about Tourette's? So there are strict definitions for Tourette's syndrome. You have to have motor tics and vocal tics, and they don't all have to have, have, to happen at the same time, but they have to happen over the course of the person's life. And they have to have been going on for more than a year. And they, this Tourette's starts in childhood. And so if you have new onset of tics as an adult, then that is not Tourette's syndrome. Although often if we were to go back and videotape them as kids, maybe they did have tics and they didn't notice. Um, and so the motor man, uh, tics, the common ones are blinking or shoulder shrugging. There are common vocal tics, which a vocal tick is anything that makes a noise. So sniffing, throat clearing, and other utterances. And tics and Tourette's syndrome are very comorbid with a number of psychiatric illnesses, such as obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. But there are plenty of people with tics and Tourette's syndrome who do not have these comorbidities. So they're good to screen for, especially because those symptoms may actually be more bothersome to the patient than the tics themselves and require treatment. 
and uh, and be really important to address maybe concurrently with addressing the tics in a psychiatric setting or psychological setting. But not every patient with tics has these comorbidities. And lastly, how is Tourette's managed? So many patients with tics do not receive treatment because they learn to live with their tics, they learn to control them to a certain degree, and they don't find that they interfere with their lives, especially younger kids. The tics come and go, it's no big deal. But if the tics become bothersome enough, there are lots of medications that we use for tics, dopamine blocking medications, such as antipsychotic medications, guanfacine and clonidine are medications we use for tics. And then this is always good to do in concert with certain psychotherapeutic techniques. There are a few that are specifically for tics, such as CBIT, CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Tics, and HRT, which is Habit Reversal Therapy. Um, and yeah, mostly, mostly those things and supportive care. All right. So wrapping up the tic section, tics are semi-voluntary, um, which means it could be suppressed temporarily, um, stereotyped movements that are, could be a transient symptom in children, but classically can appear in Tourette's syndrome, which includes both motor and phonic vocal tics, which um, can, be, uh, can occur either concurrently or at different timeframes. Uh, frequent comorbidities include OCD and ADHD, although not all patients have this. And usually tics, uh, Tourette's syndrome is managed uh, supportively with components of cognitive behavioral therapy and spe specifically CBITS and the other one, I kind of forget the name of. HRT. HRT, thank you. And uh, more severe tics can be treated um, with medications like guanfenicin and um, clonidine, for example. But most cases get treated supportively. So that just about wraps up our discussion of movement disorders and involuntary movements. We have discussed a lot today, but probably the big takeaway here uh, is really to have a good framework for approaching these movements. And that really means being able to characterize and describe the abnormal movement. And that's where just observing is very critical. Uh, but some big divisions or categories that we can think about are hyperkinetic versus hypokinetic, rhythmic versus arrhythmic. If the movement is stereotyped, if it's jerky or flowing or oscillatory, uh, where it's occurring, when it's occurring, associated symptoms. And all of these descriptors really help you hone in on what the phenomenology is. And we've talked about a few today. Uh, these are tremor, both acting and resting tremor. We talked about chorea and the choreiform spectrum. We talked about myoclonus, dystonia, and tics. Uh, so we want to thank you, Dr. Schaefer, for tackling this massive topic with us. That was an excellent summary, Sonia. I, I did appreciate that. I do want to say that I know it's very difficult to just listen to me talk about movement disorders without actually seeing the movement disorders. And if you want to learn more about movement disorders, there is a free resource through Yale. And it's at the website movementmodules.yale.edu. And there are 11 modules at the moment, and I'm making more, but they're patient video based and phenomenology and diagnosis based. And you can look at real patient videos and get practice 
uh, phenomenologically characterizing what you see and coming to a diagnosis on these patients. Absolutely. It's a great resource. So as always, we will have show notes released with this episode, and we will definitely include the link to those videos uh, with the notes.